0: Every client I've ever coached has had a hard time with this. It's something that's super critical and the linchpin of good product management. And it's something that I got a lot of help learning early in my career. And it made a huge difference in the success of the products and the companies I worked at. What is it? It's the product spec. And today we're going to be talking about how to make your product specs awesome so that your teammates and executives will actually want to read them. This is the Practical Products Podcast, and I'm your host, Jason Evanish, and I'm here to teach you exactly what you need to know about making your product specs awesome. Now, taking a look at product specs, there's a lot of mistakes that are made in your average product spec, which is why we're devoting an entire episode to it. As I've helped product managers throughout my career, and looking back at what I learned in making my product specs great... I realized that there are a number of common mistakes that especially new PMs, but even very experienced PMs can fall into, and it hamstrings their entire product development process because of how critical a good product spec is to a great development cycle and building good features. And so what are those mistakes? Well, first, they don't always cover the right topics. If you don't cover all your bases, don't be surprised if there are large gaps of information to fill in with your team. It also can mean you haven't thought through everything you should have, which then also makes a conversation harder with your colleagues and designers and engineers later on. Another very common problem is they're way too long and they're filled with fluff and fancy words and paragraphs that repeat themselves. I have seen some product specs that are five pages long that don't have three good paragraphs of information because they spend so much time trying to justify what they've decided and dictating a solution, they never actually get into any of the meat and potatoes that helps anyone understand what they're actually trying to do. Another issue is that they're overly prescriptive of the solution. And while they're busy telling their team to paint by number and build exactly what they want. It doesn't do a good job of providing the data to back up the decision you made on why you're building this of all the things you could possibly build. And you don't share the inspiring side of the why. What can motivate your team on what is the reason for this and why they should be excited about this opportunity or motivated to fix a problem? And then zooming out, even beyond an individual product spec, a very common problem I notice is product managers being inconsistent. So every single spec that they write and create is different from the last one. This is very hard, especially on your team, because if they don't see consistency in them, they don't know what to expect from you. And it makes it harder for them to understand from project to project to project what's going to happen. So, what's great is that all of these problems are very, very fixable. So, let's talk about how do you do it right. Well, the way you do that is something called the product thesis. All the credit in the world for the product thesis goes to Josh Ellman. He's an OG in Silicon Valley when it comes to product. He's worked at Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn in product leadership roles. And he was a VC at Greylock, and now he's at Apple. And unfortunately, that last job means he's not allowed to come on any podcast, or he'd totally be a guest to talk about this because he's the one who taught it to me and I want to share a quick story about how that happened a decade ago when I started working at KissMetrics, I asked Heaton for help. He was the CEO and founder of Heaton Shaw, if you may know him from his very active Twitter talking about product and startups and all things tech. And so, when I was working directly with him early in my career, I knew I had a lot to learn. And so, I turned to Heaton and I asked him to help open his network to me to help me learn the right things to do. And boy, was I lucky. Heaton connected me with some of the best and most talented in Silicon Valley. And one of those people was Josh Ellman. One afternoon he spent almost three hours with Heaton and I teaching me about his product thesis. I still remember sitting eagerly like a student in a classroom as he whiteboarded out why he did what he did and took detailed notes so I could apply them. It was a total game changer for me and every person I've coached or mentored since has benefited from it. The beauty of the product thesis is in its simplicity. First, it has everything you need and nothing you don't. It helps you cut through the noise and provide in a succinct way everything that your team needs to know from you in order to be able to build a great product. It also gives you structure to follow, like a checklist, so you get it right from the start. I can't tell you how often I've been working on a project and go, oh, wait, I still need to find answers to this section. And then that gets me to go do whatever work I was going to skip over. Or it challenges me to go find more data to round out something. All of that comes because you have a consistent structure you use every single time. Most importantly, though, the product thesis is focused on what product managers should be great at, which is problem scoping and priority setting while avoiding stepping on the toes of your talented partners in design and engineering. Product management is not a dictatorship telling your engineers and designers, hey, paint by numbers, do this exact thing the way I want it. It should be a collaborative discussion with them based around the scope, the type of feature you're trying to write, their expertise and skills and what's possible based on the constraints of your specific business. That push and pull is magical, and it's something that comes from even people like Steve Jobs. I'll link in the show notes to one of my all-time favorite blog posts. It's about somebody talking about what it's like to work with Steve Jobs, and it talks about this idea of a product cauldron. And the product cauldron is where you have a small group of people, three or four people, usually a designer, an engineer, and USPM, Maybe one other key stakeholder and sometimes, but what you do is you all bring unique perspectives. The engineer is bringing the technical perspective. What's possible? What's the technical debt? Things like that. The designer is bringing their understanding of UX and usability and what other things you've done in the product that's similar that maybe can inspire how you'll accomplish something. And then you as the product manager are bringing the business experience and understanding. What is the problems we're trying to solve for our customers? What is, what is the business needs that we need to keep in mind? And It's the alchemy of bringing all those together. You put those all in the product cauldron that leads to building the best possible products. And It's also the most motivating way because it makes your designers and engineers feel fully engaged in what you're building instead of feeling like they're just being turned into ticket takers like a short order cook in a diner. And all of this is supported by the product thesis, which makes it so much easier. Every time I'm working on a new significant feature, I make one of these because it becomes a central point of organization for for the feature. I'm also reminded how much easier it makes my life because each of the sections in it is set up so that you know what you need to fill out. You also know where to find things, because you have that same structure every single time. And so I know it becomes valuable not just in initially kicking off a potential feature and planning a new sprint and a new burndown chart and all the things you have to do when it's a big feature, but it also becomes a living document that has value throughout the product development cycle and evolves so that it can be a reference point before, during, and after you launch a feature. And so how does it work? Well. It starts as a discussion framework, again, not paint by numbers. You lay out the problem, the opportunity, and a lot more, and then you sit down with your team to have that healthy debate, that product cauldron to discuss what you will do together. It's also a collection of headers and bullets with supporting data and images, not a wall of text. You're not writing them a novel. You're trying to get your point across succinctly and efficiently. Most of my product specs, most of them are a page or a page and a half in length in a Google Doc. That's a lot shorter than a lot of the first product specs I see from people I coach and mentor. And the structure allows you to cover everything you need that way. And you also have to think about headers and bullets make it easy to scan, which allows your team to quickly reference the sections that matter most to them. Because what they may be interested in now is different than what they may reference later when they're actually doing some of their work. Like a designer may go heads down to design something you discussed, and they'll revisit some of these sections specifically to help with their inspiration. And having really strong headers and quick bullets makes it very easy for them to quickly scan and get the, get to the point. Also, of course, if you're talking about all it is is headers and a collection of bullets, it forces you to be succinct. No one wants 10 paragraphs of bullets nor a 20-page document to read. And so if you know it has to be bullets, you know it's broken up into, into clear sections, it makes it actually easy to keep the document shorter. And then most importantly, as I mentioned, it's a living document. So you figure out more related to the project, you can add more. You can add context and info as well based on any questions you have. And of course, as things like Figma or Adobe designs get made, you can add links to those. So it almost becomes like a table of contents. And of course, if you have an Epic in Jira or your preferred project management tool, adding links again is helpful. This means that, say your boss, who either maybe is a PM or maybe it's an executive, you can even share this with them and they know that it is a central point where they can track what's going on and get a general gist of what you're working on. So, let's talk about it. What goes into a product thesis? The key to the product thesis, again, is efficiency. You have a small separate section for each important area, which allows you to succinctly provide each aspect of information that you need. Again, remember, these should be in bullet form. If you can't say it simply in a a short phrase or a sentence or two, you should break it up or consider if you're scoping this project effectively. That's actually one of the best insights I've found is if my product thesis starts getting too long, I know I probably have too big of a feature and I need to think about how to cut it down. There's just more and more ways by starting on the right foot with this structure it helps you in a variety of ways. So let's talk about what those sections are and, and we'll link to some further reading details and some additional information you can sign up to have us email to you so you can see exactly how this process works. Is your product team delivering the way you need them to? Are you shipping great product improvements at the frequency and quality you hoped? Becoming a great product manager does not happen by accident. It takes a lot of learning along with trial and error. And when you have product managers reporting to you, they need your guidance, even as the demands of running your company only grow. Unfortunately, things like coaching and teaching don't tend to fit on a founder or C-level executive's busy schedule like yours. Even if you know your team members need it. Fortunately, I've been a founder and an early stage product leader for over 12 years. During that time I've mentored and coached dozens of product managers. I can fill in the gaps you wish you had time for and help diagnose and fix the most common problems that plague underperforming product managers and teams. If you wanna see if I can help you and your product team's challenges, go to becustomerdriven.com and sign up for a free call to discuss your needs and how I can help you. Again, that's becustomerdriven.com. So the first section, hugely important, very underrated. Why? are we working on this next the why is so big you're explaining to people the motivation for choosing this over the 1 million other things you could have done the best ways to do this is to make it a mix of qualitative and quantitative info so you may on one hand have a metric like let's say the feature is you know our page load speeds are too slow we need to fix this feature because it keeps crashing so, on the quantitative side, you may have the numbers to say, hey, 30% of customers had this page crash on them in the last month. This is obviously devastating to the quality of the feature and the trust in our brand. And then on the qualitative side, you might have a couple of support tickets with customer messaging in an email saying, hey, I, when I can't use this feature, I can't do X in my company. It's blocking me. I really need you guys to fix this. I'm going to have to find another solution. A quote like that is worth a million things that you say yourself as a PM. I've found nothing is more convincing to a designer or an engineer or even any other kind of peer than direct language from your customers and your users. So if you have a few of those mixed in to go with the data, it really brings to life the why and can really motivate people. And that can be both this negative example of like, hey, we have a page load speed problem or a page crashing problem. It can also be on the more positive side of like, hey, we help customers do X and they're telling us this is a really big problem. I have 25 customers who say they're ready to pay us for it the second we launch. And we have like 10 pre-sales contracts from sales. Like You can have positive angles as well to confirm why you need it, but the point is you want the why to be powerful and inspiring. It's not meant to be aspirational and woo-woo and just a description of you being like, guys, trust me, this is going to be awesome. No, you want it to be validated and have some data points to point to it around who wants it, why do they want it, why is it important to them, and have data to back that up so that, again, you're giving your your team members an inkling of why this is important. Why did you possibly pick this? But at the same time, remember, less is more. What is the strongest case? Say that. And if there's supporting data, include it. But you don't need reason number 722. Just your top three most powerful and compelling things is more than enough. And remember, in in general, this is all about being motivational. Whether it's rallying your team to fix a problem or exciting opportunity validate it, this is what you want to convey to your team that motivates them, frankly, to read the rest of it and also believe in your credibility as a PM. Because nothing, nothing creates eye rolls faster for an engineering team than when they don't respect their product manager because they don't feel like their product manager is actually doing the work to build the most important things. And so this entire document will help you with that credibility. And it really, really starts with this section. Section two, when and how do people use this feature, a.k.a. what are the use cases? So here is where you want to paint a picture. You want to help people imagine the scenarios that they need to solve or they're building new things for. And so let's consider these two options. The first one is the JVPM approach that I see all too often that is just very lazy and doesn't really work. And so, it's the, it's the old sentence, as a blank, I want blank. So, in this case, our example will say, as a marketer, I want a mobile app so I can access my data away from a computer. Sure, technically accurate, but is it inspiring? No. And is it something I can really imagine? Not really. Or if I did, I bet what I imagine and what you imagine are different and they're also different than what two other people if we randomly asked them after reading that sentence, which is why instead you, you want to paint an accurate picture because you've been talking to customers and you understand what their use case is. So for instance, when I helped build a mobile app to help marketers access their data from a computer, it was for a future metrics, we built a little mobile app for them. And I interviewed a whole bunch of customers to understand it and what they told us was a much more powerful story. And so that story was, on their commute on the subway, content marketers like to check how their blog traffic is doing for items they publish that morning or the day before. It helps them get into work and know how they're doing before they sit down. If a number is low, they may try promoting it extra to try to raise the number. And if the number is high, they may share the win with others on the team. Now think about that for a second. Can you imagine a guy or gal sitting down, on their subway, maybe you're imagining it's New York City, maybe you're imagining it's somewhere in Europe, you can see them opening their phone and looking at this. And more importantly, that context, it was about blog traffic. It was about a recent post. And it was about what they would do if it was high or low. Suddenly, you can see the whole picture. You can imagine them slacking to their team. Hey, high five team, this post is killing it. Or you can see them quickly queuing up a tweet on their phone. And that's the point. That's the whole point is that you paint a clear picture, and it makes it easier for your team to understand. But that picture is not you making it up. Absolutely not. The entire point of the product thesis is that you are a good PM who does the work. And if you do the work, writing out these sections in the product thesis is easy. If you don't do the work, you will be exposed. But this is a great checklist to help you fill in those gaps because you can start writing this at any time. And if you find there's a section you're not good at, like maybe you don't have enough stories, then it tells you, hey, you know what? I should go talk to a couple more customers before we build this or before I present this to the rest of the team. And it challenges you in positive ways and it makes you a better PM. The other thing to keep in mind is obviously keep them succinct. You want two to three of the most common or important examples. You don't need a hundred. If the ones you provide aren't enough for your team, you can always give them a couple extra, maybe have them in your back pocket. But again, you're trying to keep these sections short. So like that bullet example I gave you about them on the subway and looking at the numbers, you'd only want one or two more like that. And that section's done. So don't go crazy. Just look to try to explain the basics of what's going on and help them understand when and where they're doing it and why it matters. All right, so point three, this is a biggie. What problems do we need to solve? And in what priority? Remember, features are just solutions to customer problems. And those problems can come in many forms, but typically fit in a few buckets. One is performance. If you've ever heard of Olson's hierarchy of needs, which is basically taking Maslow's hierarchy of needs and applying it to products. If a feature isn't functioning or is terribly slow, nothing else matters. So you may want to get data for something like this. What's the average? What's the median? How slow is it for high value customers? How can you quantify what this problem is? Because that'll tell you, hey, maybe that's just, this is... The most important problem for why we're working on this feature, like when we were redoing the live feature in Kissmetrics, it was crashing all the time. And so that was the number one reason we were working on the feature. If performance did not improve, nothing else mattered. Now secondary problems ended up being what's another common category, design. Is the feature usable? Are there parts that are confusing? Are there things that people can't find and that CS constantly has to teach people? You mark these up in an image. A picture is worth a thousand words. You could have a simple bullet saying there are numerous design issues and UX issues and usability issues with them. Go make a loom and show them in like two minutes all the problems. Or I love taking a screenshot and just drawing all over it and saying, hey, here's gray-on-gray text. People can't read it. Hey, here's the stuff where text is truncated too commonly in a real-life example. All those kinds of things will make it easy for your designer to know what to fix, and it saves you writing out a massive list because all they have to do is look at the image. And then the third is new problems. For new features, you might explain what the pain is inside your product or the new pain you want to solve. Hey, customers can't do X and they really want to because of Y. Or they may say that the pain of a current solution just isn't working for them. It takes seven steps to do this and we really want them to be able to do it in two. Anyways, you want to lay out what your problems are, but importantly, you want to quantify them so that it's easy to understand why this why this matters to someone. So how many hours, how many steps, what are the hacks they're taking instead? How valuable and big is the problem? Is it taking most of someone's workday to resolve it? Or is it a problem that is visible to the company's VP, so it's important to look good to their boss? Those sorts of things will help you then think about the important step of prioritizing your problems. So you may list out, I, there are times where I can have a dozen problems for a feature. This is one of the longest sections. They should still be brief and to the point, but you can have a lot of them. But And that's why it's important to rank them because what happens is there are certain ones you cannot compromise on like i said with the live feature when we had a kiss metrics we could not let go of fixing the speed issue and the fact that the the system was crashing that had to get fixed or did not matter what design we did because that would just be putting you know a new hot paint coat on a broken down car so we knew we had to fix that and then you have these other problems that are hey if we can let's fix those and so by prioritizing them you make it easier to have those trade-off discussions and those scoping discussions, because you can say, "Hey, these are the ones we absolutely have to fix. We don't fix these. There's no point in doing the feature." Then you might have some that are like, "Hey, it'd be great if we could do these, but if we, if it's really tough, we'll cut these." And then you have the nice to haves. And the nice to haves are ones where your designer may look and say, "Oh, I can I can fix that. I can redesign that." And engineering might be like, "Oh, that's a quick win. That'll take me two minutes. Oh yeah, I could totally do that." And so what you'll find is you may lay out eight problems. The top two definitely get fixed. Those are hills for you to die on but you may drop problem number four and then it turns out that five six and eight can definitely be done because design's like oh yeah I'll incorporate that in my redesign and as you'll be like oh yeah I could fix number eight like today. And so I'll just fix that bug right now. And so what you'll find, though, is, is that by ranking them, you make it clear what are the ones that really matter. So that if like problem number eight on your list is something that would take six months to do, well, guess what? You're never doing that. Everybody's just walking away and saying, OK, we're not going to do that. It's not that important. And it's really hard. So de-scope right away. But that would only become an easy conversation if people know what the ranking is on these problems. And lastly, on the prioritization, it's also important. This is when you reference your product product thesis later on, because what happens is you go and you're having a discussion, you're at like 85% of the way there on a feature, and now you're talking about, man, if we're going to hit our launch deadline, we got to cut something. Well, if you still rank the problems, this will help you know when you should say, yep, cut that. We don't need problem number six. Isn't that important? Let it go. Or it's like, no, we can't touch that. That's literally part of problem number one. If we don't fix it, you know what? We need to push back the launch date if we can't can't do that. By ranking them, it gives you something to reference later because if you're busy building, getting the next feature ready, you may forget some of the stuff. But by organizing it in the product thesis, you'll have it for reference so that you can have that debate even if it's two months later. Are you a self-taught product manager? Do you feel like there's gaps in your skills holding you back? Are you comfortable teaching others how you do product management? The fact is, no one learns product management in school. You have to learn by cobbling together resources, reading books and blog posts, seeking out mentors, and learning on the job through trial and error. I've been there. I was a self-taught PM too, and I was lucky to learn from some of the best product minds in Silicon Valley. Now I want to teach you everything I've learned. To do that, I've written blog posts, shared knowledge on these podcasts with great guests, and now I'm doing a limited number of coaching and consulting engagements. If you're looking to level up as a product leader and want to tune up you and your product team's skills, then go to becustomerdriven.com and sign up for a free call to discuss your needs and how I may be able to help you. Again, go to becustomerdriven.com. All right, so point four. This is a simple but important one that I see a lot of PMs miss. And it causes huge problems with missing deadlines. And that is, how much time is budgeted for this project? When does it need completed by? Keep it simple. This can literally be a single bullet. How many weeks do you have for this project? And what is the target ship date? Or if it's not the target ship date, when it's in your QA and ready for deploy process, whatever your process is for launching something, that means engineering basically should be done with things. Because the point with all of this is to help your engineers. If you tell them they have three months to do something, they will agree to build very different things than if you give them three days or even three weeks. And everything has trade offs. If you build this for six weeks, you only have half a quarter left for anything else you want to build. So you want to think carefully about how much time you're willing to give one project while recognizing that the bigger the project, the longer an overrun is also like to be. So, Recognize that these are all just guesses, but if you can at least constrain a little bit, you're much more likely to build to the right scale, and you'll have the right trade-off conversations on day one. Because it's very easy to just start something and just go. And If you don't do any estimates, and you don't know how long something's going to take, don't be surprised if it takes longer than you plan. and then suddenly you're looking at your OKRs and you're not going to hit them because you never launched anything this quarter because this one project blew long you never did anything else. You need to plan out what is the amount of time you want to give to this and why. If you do that, that sets the table for your entire discussion, especially with engineering, to at least ballpark it, even if you're not going to be precise. Next you have, what are the future considerations that must be accounted for? Especially given the time budget constraint from my previous point, we know you can't build everything you want to for a project, yet you may know that an area is going to be revisited regularly in the next few quarters. For those situations, you need to let your engineers know. This section of future considerations is all about avoiding hearing from engineers. I wish you'd told me that before we built this thing. By telling them what might come in the future, they can build a certain way to enable that. You don't know all the decisions your engineers are going to make that may be technical trade-offs, or I could build it this way, or I could build it this way. And the first way, path A, sets you up perfectly for what you want to do next. And path B makes it extremely difficult. If you don't give them a hint that that's the case, it's not their fault if they build the wrong direction. So you always want to tell them, hey, this is just phase one. In phase two, we expect we might do X, Y, and Z. And certainly, if some of your problems get de-scoped in the earlier section, move them in here so that they remember, oh yeah, we de-scoped this, but we might come back to it. It's not a commitment to build it now. It's not expecting them to build anything in future considerations. It's only telling them, hey, as you construct this, keep in mind these are things we're thinking about. You will save a lot doing that, and your engineers and designers will respect you greatly because you're thinking ahead to make their lives easier, which is your job as a product manager in many cases. So with that short section out of the way, another important one that a lot of PMs miss out on is, what is our KPI or metric for this thesis? So many PMs forget this and it's so important being a good PM should not be a binary measure of did it ship or not Other than like the launch of your very first feature You're not going to have a case where shipping is the win and and the point of celebration You want to make sure what you ship actually works that it actually improves the things that you said it would improve that it moves the needle and the metrics you're supposed to and so You should be asking yourself, what number will we improve and what baseline do we have or need to get before we start building this so we can compare the before and after. For instance, if you're fixing page load speed time, what is the average page load speed time and what are the 10 worst page load speed times in the last week? Compare those to post launch. Is it better? How much better? Boom, now you have something to celebrate. Or if you're launching a new feature, is there a certain amount of adoption or is there a certain amount of revenue you expect to get from it? Setting the goal, even if you miss, will still give you something to measure and look back at later so that you can calibrate yourself as a PM to see, hey, OK, I built 12 things last year. How many of them actually had the impact I thought they would? No one bats a 1,000. But you want to make sure you're closer to a 1,000 than zero. And that only happens if you take the time to measure and set what it is. So what are some examples of exactly what I'm talking about? Well, you might say support requests will drop by 90% for this feature after relaunch. That would be a good one if, Customer success is getting bombarded with problems about either not knowing how to use a feature because the UX is really bad and you're going to fix it, or because it's crashing. If you fix it and make it easier to use, then tickets you expect would go down. Another one might be usage of the app will grow by at least 50% after relaunch. If you find that there's a feature that seems unusable and people aren't coming back to it, then maybe you set something around retention like that. Or another one could be, because this feature affects the sign-up flow, we expect a 5% lift in conversion after this relaunch. Again, the idea is you're measuring before and after. Maybe it's an A-B test. The point is, you want to understand what is going to change and putting a marker down to make sure you're measuring these things and then going back to look back. Sometimes you may want to involve engineering. They love this stuff. And the reason they love it is because they want to be data driven too. They think like engineers. It means they're process oriented. And so if you need their help to get a get a number, I guarantee you one of your engineers will be very excited to help you get a number and then help look back later. And then another section I like to have in this, but only for larger companies, is who are the stakeholders and how and when do they need to be involved? This is all about being a good collaborator as a product leader. And especially large organizations, you're going to be cross-functional. You're going to have stakeholders who are interested in what you're doing or have a vested interest in the future you're building. Keeping them in mind and having a plan for how to keep them involved is very important. So list out the name, the department, and when and how you expect them to be involved in the project. Leave it one name per bullet so it's very, very clear and easy to scan. And then think through exactly how they're going to be involved. That's really important too, because you don't want them to invade every project meeting. They shouldn't be there when you're scoping out Jira tickets, but they may need to be there when you're having an important scope and de scope project where you're deciding things you can and can't have. So this is good both from the positive side of you being a good communicator, but also setting boundaries. You're setting clearly, hey, I think you need to be involved here and here in my process. And these other steps you probably won't be. And so this is a really helpful way for you to clearly define boundaries and help you remember who you may want to share this product thesis with outside of your pod or product design and engineering team. One more section that I consider optional, but is also valuable the bigger your company gets is what kind of launch or marketing slash sales efforts go with this feature. A small internal project may get no press or outside of the company attention. Meanwhile, a major launch of a brand new thing can be a big deal. And marketing wants weeks or months ahead of time to plan. And so you need to be thinking ahead, hey, this is a really big feature. I should probably talk to marketing so they can plan out some really cool stuff. Like maybe they want to get press, which means they'll need screenshots ahead of time. They need a story of what it's going to look like. They may even want a staging account so they can show something off to a tech writer. So the point is, you want to think ahead on how big of a feature this is, so again, you know how to coordinate with your peers and colleagues in other departments. And this can be as simple or sophisticated as needed, depending on the size of your company and how you all work together. Obviously, if you don't have a sales team, you don't have to worry about this as much. But if you have a strong product marketing team, then they're going to love you for taking the time to think ahead on how they should be involved. But if you're an early stage startup, you may not need to do as much because the bigger the product and marketing gets, the more siloed they become. This is why it becomes important there. Finally, the last section then is further reading. This section is for all that stuff. You're like, Jason, why didn't you include X? Well, it's probably not nearly as important as the questions we just went over. But you can always show your work in further reading. You can link to other things. This is a great way to have other sources. And so I find this really underrated. And so, this is where you show your work, backup evidence, and links to other things. So, things I love to include are things like customer interview recordings and notes that I took from those interviews so that anybody curious about a certain quote I have of a customer or something I put in the thesis, they can see the references. Where did I get this? You can link to reports in other systems that maybe support this. Maybe it's an analytics report that shows the number dropping. Maybe it's a custom SQL query system that you guys use with the, the query save so everybody can go look at the number you were looking at. Maybe it's survey results. Maybe you surveyed your customer audience and you have got a really strong response on this. Maybe it's things like screen recordings and other supporting data showing bugs and issues to fix. Or maybe there's even things that like customer success made you to show you the depth of an issue. Well, you can pass that along in here as well. And then obviously any bug tickets that may be included in the project to fix as well as things like mockups, JIRA tickets, and other items that get created before, during, and after this discussion can all go in here, just make it organized. Again, the whole point is this is easy for people to scan. And so all this ties together to make sure you cover everything you should. It helps you have good answers to common questions that people would have before they want to start working on a feature, and it avoids adding fluff or BS that makes people skip reading your document. And it gives you big credibility with your coworkers who see how organized and thorough you are while still managing to be concise and easy to read that's why the product thesis is so powerful now i realize that this is a lot and i just said it all by word and so head on over to my blog we'll put links in the show notes we'll put links and further reading and we'll give you a way to sign up and i will send you an example of a template you can use so you can apply this product thesis to your company and your job and start making it so your product specs are something people really want to read as well. So, thanks for listening and I hope your product specs become better because of this. And of course, if you ever have questions or want help with your product spec, just shoot me an email at Jason at BeCustomerDriven.com. Thanks for listening.